0: SECTION 13 of Mrs. Dimond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hannah Parrott. Mrs. Dimond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Part 2. Chapter 5. Stella Mayer. Gremio. Nay, I have offered all, I have no more. AND SHE CAN HAVE NO MORE THAN ALL I HAVE, IF YOU LIKE ME, SHE SHALL HAVE ME AND MINE. TAMING OF THE SHREW Charlie was gone, and Tempe remained by the lakeside to prepare for her father and stepmother's homecoming, and to ponder and wonder over the difficulties that lay before herself and Charlie. Would her father ever consent to their marriage? In time, in time, thought Tempy joe her sympathizing friend and brother looked ominously sympathetic if only he had any profession and if only he hadn't spent so much money said tempy turning very red she was too straightforward to disguise the truth from herself and she began already to feel accountable for charlie's misdeeds if only he had any prospects at all said joe gloomily for charlie was not the heir though uncle Ball made him an allowance another uncle somewhere in south america was not the less entitled to his rights because his address was somewhat uncertain people had imagined that aunt fanny's savings would come to charles but tempy knew that most of these monies had been engulfed in a desperate speculation of miss bolsover's from which the squire had also suffered this dearly-bought experience had been useful in helping Aunt Fanny to point a moral when not unfrequent letters arrived from Oxford containing expostulations, explanations, and tradesmen's accounts. Charlie had all the Bolsover's love of cheap finery, and a special aptitude for some more expensive amusements as well. He had shown himself a reckless youth, unpunctual, unpractical, experimental, driving up unexpectedly at different hours of the day and night in fresh dilemmas and without money to pay his cab on one occasion just before being sent down from oxford charlie had persuaded joe to join him in some venture there on a neighboring racecourse, where miss bolsover had miraculously appeared parasol in hand and with great spirit and presence of mind extricated the two boys then and there from the hands of a couple of sharpers the colonel was specially bitter about this affair with paternal sympathy he considered joe to have been misled but he had no excuse for his nephew and even refused to see charlie again before he went abroad poor tempy gave a great sigh as she remembered this episode and its possible influence upon her fate but she trusted her cousin he had promised her on that occasion that he would bet no more and he had never failed tempy yet Tempe had constituted herself Charlie's guardian of late ever since he had outgrown the legal authority of uncle bull and of a certain mr White his mother's cousin to whom he still from habit used to apply for advice and forgiveness on occasion The Rev. Samuel Wilberforce white was a worthy but preoccupied man dwelling among the pianofortes in a modest lodging in Soho and one who taking life philosophically himself found it difficult to realize the overwhelming importance of other people's failures and successes in their own estimation he was a hard-worked man well on in years with a bald head a smiling face and with so many troubles and delinquencies on his hands that Charlie's particular share scarcely counted so seriously in the incidental confusion all round about the curate's house as at bolsover that decorous and orderly establishment where life passed to the sound of punctual gongs docketed discussed and labelled for weeks beforehand mr white from long practice could grasp the heavier troubles of life far better than its proprieties and social problems and being a simple-minded person he took it for granted that others were like himself he also remembered what it was to be in love and could sympathize with charlie's state of mind when that young gentleman immediately on arriving in town poured out his feelings over a pipe by the study fire and the result of their conversation was that charles bolsover that very evening was ringing at the visitor's bell of eiderdown's hotel and was being shown up by a boy in buttons to his fate alas the little page was no cupid in disguise the young lover tried to look even more at his ease than usual but his heart was in his mouth as the saying is when he was shown into the room where colonel dimmond sat reading the paper by the light of two candles in tall silver candlesticks the blinds were drawn the room was dark but the light fell upon the colonel and his handsome profile and his gold eyeglasses he looked up when the young man was announced why charles are you up in town said the unsuspicious colonel kindly willing to condone the past in his present new-found happiness how do you do how did you leave them all this friendly greeting gave the youth some hope much as usual uncle John said he with a faint revival of spirit they are all quite well aunt Fanny has set up a guitar and another litter of cats uncle Ball has been out sailing on the lake and Joe has caught nearly all the trout Charlie tried to speak in his usual tranquil drawl he was wondering all the time how he could best begin upon the subject he had in his mind You must stop and dine with us, said the Colonel, with a magnanimous effort, and be introduced to your—your aunt. I'm at Mr. White's for a day or two, said Charlie. I am afraid he is expecting me home to dinner. Then I go back to Oxford, Uncle John. That last term was very unlucky. It has all been very unlucky, he added, and I'm afraid they will look very black when I first get back, but nothing shall go wrong again if I can help it. Mr. White has kindly written to my uncle, and made every arrangement for paying up what I owe at present out of the fund still in hand. Any future claims I must contrive to meet out of my allowance. I can assure you it is a lesson I shan't forget. These sort of difficulties do bring home one's utter folly as nothing else could do, said poor Charlie with some bitterness. The Colonel was very much taken aback to hear his nephew, usually so indifferent to reproach, speaking in this practical sensible way he somewhat mistrusted sudden reforms and had not yet the key to charlie's change of mind he was so used to look upon him as a hopeless young scapegrace forever suggesting rebellion to joe and to tempy forever giving trouble and having to be extracted from difficulties that he was almost disconcerted to find the youth sitting opposite to him amber tie cameo ring and all talking like a man of forty i i'm very glad you take such a sensible view of the past and i hope you will remember the lesson said the colonel somewhat perturbed and still anticipating a demand for money such reckless extravagance as yours makes everybody else suffer and most especially your good aunt fanny who has been absolutely devoted to you for years past the door opened while uncle john was speaking and a waiter looked in carrying a small paper parcel which had just come from the jewellers oh take it to mrs dimmond she is in her room says the colonel hastily the momentary break gave charlie courage to go on after all uncle john is a kind-hearted old fellow he thinks he may be vexed at first he will be sure to relent in a little time charlie seems to see tempy's tender steady eyes before him and to hear her saying courage don't waste words uncle john he said when the colonel looked round again there is something else i want to say to you i came to london to say it how could i when could i see you see me here i am says the colonel in a more natural voice and not unkindly well what is it about i hope no more charlie usually so deliberate so self-controlled lost his advantage and the cruel gods having first taken his reason now allowed him to rush upon his own destruction I don't suppose you will approve particularly but it's no new thing he says quickly and starting up to his feet for years past and especially this summer i have known that my feelings uncle john in short that i have fallen hopelessly in love with tempi i don't deserve her but i love her truly with all my heart indeed you may depend on me in future says charlie but colonel dimmond who was quick-tempered who perhaps overestimated his daughter who had never liked or approved of charlie who had expected some confidence of a very different nature now blazed up in a sudden wrath which was all the more fierce because the colonel was usually so gentle he dashed away his paper you must be out of your mind charles do you propose yourself as a fit husband for my little girl you who have given us all nothing but trouble ever since you left school you who are the last man in the world i should ever think of or consent to accept as a son-in-law of course you have not spoken to her on the subject and i beg you will never refer to this nonsense again to me or to anybody else she knows of course she knows how much i love her said charlie bolsover gravely turning very white and putting a strong control upon himself You have no right it is not fair to speak to me in this way i don't pretend to be worthy of her but if she had not loved me i should certainly not have come to you. i have a right to protect my daughter cries the father in his coldest hardest tone also getting up from his chair and i am surprised that you should have spoken to her in this in this most unjustifiable way without waiting to ascertain my wishes she is sixteen and romantic she will get over a girlish fancy and thank me for what i am doing as for you confound your impotence thought the colonel i really need hardly point out to you how undesirable you would be in every way as a son-in-law your own fortune is involved you are past twenty-one but you have never shown one single sign of moderate application "'Your chosen companions are people of blemished character and reputation—the less I say of them, the better—and now you come to me, after a whole year of disgrace and—and laziness and—rustication, and ask me to give you my child!' cries the colonel, relapsing into a fatherly and not unnatural fury. At that moment, as the two were standing side by side, Charlie, still very pale and with difficulty mastering his indignant protest— though all the time some secret consciousness of justice and right doing upheld him the colonel flushed with suppressed anger and trembling nervously at that very moment the door opens again a smiling sweet apparition comes in flying with floating draperies across the room holding a shining star in one upraised hand with a bright and sweet and happy face unconscious susie stands there oh how good of you how lovely cries the smiling young goddess oh thank you dear john how the apparition suddenly stops short seeing that her husband is not alone she turns confused from one to the other looks from the colonel's flushed face to charlie with the pale and trembling lips and finding that something is seriously amiss the brightness dies away out of her face this is Charles Bolsover, Susanna says the Colonel very gravely, but regaining something of his usual manner with an effort. I am glad you like your star, my dear, but will you leave us a minute to finish our business and Susanna slowly turns and looking rather anxiously from one to the other, leaves the room once more. All the brightness seemed to go with her, but something less angry remained behind. I may have seemed hasty, says the Colonel as she left i beg your pardon charles but it is truest kindness to speak plainly on such occasions and not to try to ignore the difficulties the insuperable difficulties in the way of such a match some marriages are impossible and absolutely unsuitable in every way did you find that out when you married uncle john said charles bitterly it's no use my staying he went on All I have to say is that I love Tempe with all my heart and with all my strength and that you are doing us both a cruel wrong I shall not be the only one to suffer remember that said Charlie I shall not change you don't know me if you think I shall ever change and she won't change And I am not in the habit of changing my mind either said the colonel dryly If there is any other way in which I can help you at any time you need not insult a man said Charlie furious and feeling that he was losing his head he went away very quickly without taking any further leave he was dreadfully shaken bitterly miserably disappointed he brushed past susanna in the passage and got out into the street he hardly knew how susy went back into the room where her husband was sitting she was haunted by the poor boy's wild looks she could not forget them the colonel after a few irritated stamps up and down the room sat down to his papers again, with a final tug at his well-fitting coat-collar, and tried to dismiss the disagreeable subject from his mind. He felt perfectly satisfied with himself, and he told himself that he had done his duty as a father and a colonel in the army, and that it was his part to save his child from so outrageous a marriage, and yet he could not prevent an undefined and continuing feeling of irritation and apprehension what business had the fellow to put him into such an unpleasant position to throw all the disagreeables of interference upon him poor little tempy it was a girlish fancy it would soon pass off it ought to have been easy enough to put such an unpleasant subject out of his mind now with charlie gone and no tempy at hand to look reproach and while so sweet an audience stood beside him ready to agree to every one of his conclusions to Susy, indeed the colonel made very light of the whole affair didn't you know charles bolsover he has set up some absurd nonsense about tempe it is simply preposterous and out of the question and i told him so very plainly oh john didn't you give him any hope said Susy, looking troubled what the deuce should i give him any hope for said the colonel testily then he softened again as he read the expression in Susy's eyes it was not reproach, not even protest, but a sort of diffident sympathy, pity, bewilderment. Some day, when Tempy knows more of the world, when she realises what sort of a fellow this is, she will be grateful to her old father, said the Colonel. And she and you, Susie, will do me justice, he added with some reproach in his tone. We can do you justice now, John, his wife answered gravely, raising her eyes to his, and as she looked she saw his grey face brighten up perhaps a juster less impressionable spirit might have made things less pleasant than Susy could bear to do for to tell the truth though she tried to believe her colonel must be right she could not forget the poor lover's stricken looks hers was not an uncompromising nature and herein lay the secret weakness and the flaw in her true heart some harmonious spirit presided at her birth and gifted her with qualities perhaps too well suited for this life so that from her childhood she seemed to fall naturally into her place into her daily task to unravel quietly and patiently the tangled skein of other people's wishes and opinions it was not that she did not feel for herself but she was slow to express what she felt diffident to assert her convictions she could look at life from that wider and less selfish point of view which helps some people through its chief perplexities but which also takes away from the useful influence which those exert who possessed the clear and swerving minds, which belong of right to the rulers, the leaders of the world. Susanna was not born to lead, she was a follower for many years. Then came a day, still far away, when she found she must cast away the guidance of others, be true to herself, to her own instincts and nature, or fall utterly in her own estimation. People like Charlie, all unused to self-control, become immediately desperate somehow, where calmer natures have not begun to give up hope. As he hurried along, more than one passer-by was struck by his pale and miserable face. One young man, something older than himself, no other indeed than Max Dupas, on his way to a dining-house close by, stopped short as young Bolsover reeled against him, and took a step after him, thinking he was ill. But Charlie strode along the road and disappeared in the crowd. He hardly knew where he went, nor cared what became of himself, An excitable, nervous boy, he was overpowered by this new feeling, the most unselfish he had ever known, by this sense of responsibility, and by the knowledge that it was not only his own happiness but Tempe's which was at stake. He was completely overmastered for the time by the possibility of being irrevocably parted from her. It seemed to him like a death sentence, as if he had seen the Colonel put on a black cap, and heard himself condemned then and there he found himself at the curate's door after wandering about the streets for an hour. The colonel and his wife at Eiderdown's hotel were just sitting down to their eight o'clock dinner. Mr. White, concluding that Charlie was with his uncle, had long since finished his own modest meal, and had rushed off to a class meeting. Charlie flung himself into the curate's chair before his hard-working table, and found some comfort in pouring out all his bitter disappointment, misery, indignation, in a long endless letter to poor tempi written on the paper of the society for the relief of distress in london the secretary might have found some difficulty in dealing with charlie's case when mr white got home not long after from his vestry meeting he found the poor boy all changed and disordered sobbing and broken-hearted with his head upon the table and the letter lying on the desk ready to be sent to post charlie's head ached his hands burned he had tasted no food all day for he had been too much excited to eat coming up in the train his smart clothes were dirty and crumpled his black satin hair was rough his black velvet eyes were dim and heavy poor boy said kind mr white cheer up charlie don't give way like this the colonel will relent in time when he sees you are in earnest come and post your letter to her and get some supper added the curate not knowing what other consolation to suggest nor how to provide food for his guest at that time of night his housekeeper was a punctual virgin who locked up her stores and only kept her lamp burning up to a stated hour there's a very good eating-place close by i shall be glad of some supper myself mr white continued and he put his arm into charlie's and brought him out into the street Still dizzy, but also somewhat comforted by such kind words and sympathies, and he gratefully followed the curate, who, knowing the district, led the way to a certain Cafe Fourchette some ten minutes off. End of section 13.